0: Welcome to episode four of On The Balcony. Today, we're engaging with chapter four of Ron Heifetz's book, Leadership Without Easy Answers, with the title Mobilizing Adaptive Work. It's a chapter that helps us deepen our understanding on how leadership work is different from authority work. Heifetz dives into two cases to illuminate this one is about a medical doctor, Dr. Parsons. And the other one is about the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, an executive called William Ruckelshaus. Both Dr. Parsons and Mr. Ruckelshaus try to exercise leadership on problems that were beyond their authority, beyond their mandate, or the scope of their role, if you want. These were problems that did not just have technical components. That could be fixed and solved with expertise but that were adaptive in nature and required learning unlearning or relearning for the doctor it meant helping the patient and the family deal with the reality of a terminal illness learning how to prepare for the final stage of life and for the head of the epa it meant how to orchestrate the difficult conversations in a community around their tough choices between jobs and health, long-term and short-term. We learn about the role that good authority can play when people are confronted with adaptive challenges, but also how limiting it can be. Our guest today knows a lot about that. We're joined by Lauren Lyons, who has been practicing leadership in the space industry at places like NASA and SpaceX or Blue Origin among other things she will share with us some wisdom on how to manage innovation while also honoring the old ways of doing things as with all of our guests lauren will bring a piece of the text from chapter four and together we'll chew on it for more insights and application in the second half of the show you can continue to join me on my own journey to explore the frontier of my leadership practice. With my coach and Kono colleague Judith Teichert. But first, let's begin with my conversation with Lauren Lyons.
1: Hey Lauren, welcome. Thank you for having me,
0: Michael. We're going to get started by just highlighting a few of the ideas that stood out to us in this chapter, chapter four, which is called mobilizing adaptive work. As you were revisiting that chapter, what's What's been coming up for you?
1: I'd say the first thing that stuck out to me was this concept of that bi-directional interdependence when it comes to authority, you know, that the authority is given in exchange for meeting expectations. And that really, really stuck out to me. The second thing I'd say was just seeing such a clear and concise breakdown of the framework of a type one and type two and type three type of problem, what's an adaptive problem, what's a technical problem, and what types of resources we mobilize to work those types of issues. So I really just appreciated the concreteness of that. And the third key theme that really spoke to me was that in the Dr. Parsons example, that balance between the buffering of those expectations, but also building capacity in the patient to, to work their own issues and work their own problems. And specifically, I believe the, the book refers to that as authority, both as a resource and as a constraint.
0: Yeah. And what's so interesting to me is that there's really this connection between those two big distinctions of the framework, right? There is the work of leadership is addressing adaptive challenges. The work of authority is to deploy that expertise towards technical problem solving and sort of bringing those two big distinctions that Heifetz has talked before in this book together, I think is the core piece that's, that's happening in this chapter.
1: Totally. And I, I feel like there's sometimes this like feeling that they don't work together and, you know, in concert with one another. And I, I just love that this makes that clear
0: yeah and and also, of course, that's where some of the complexity comes in, right because a lot of leadership is practiced from roles of authority, and I think that's what this chapter unpacks so beautifully why it is hard you know you have that example of you know both the doctor who is who can't solve the medical problem and and needs to practice some leadership for the patient and the family and then that that interesting policy example around the the e p a where the regulation is addressing an adaptive challenge and is including the constituencies in that and all of that, that heat and, and challenge disequilibrium that is raised by that.
1: Yes, yes. And particularly moved by that, I guess I would say, how do I call it? The, the danger associated with being that authority figure in both of those examples. In the case of the doctor, if she pushes too far in one direction or the other, the consequences are disastrous. You know, the patient dies. And in the case of the EPA administrator, he can lose his job. And just seeing the riskiness uh, associated with that work and, and their, their struggle in doing that balance of the adaptive and the technical work. What a
0: beautiful foundation, Lauren, for, for both of us to to talk today. And I'm so curious to hear how these themes show up in your world. You bring a breadth of experience with you. And it has, it has been our practice in these conversations to explore the different roles and role identities.
1: Well, I would say some of the identities that I am bringing to this conversation are I am... An engineer, and so I, you know, have a predisposition to look at things very technically. I work in a very technical industry, um, and that's how we do things. <laughs> but I'm also a, a student of this hyphens methodology, and once you learn it, you can't unlearn it, and it's kind of with you. And so, I'm constantly balancing that very technical part of myself and being in a very technical industry with this knowledge and this experience that I've gained. And so I'm bringing with me identifying as someone who can hold both of those together. And I would say another one I, I would bring forward is I identify as someone who is very fearless when it comes to change making. <laughs> and so always the person to to speak up and to to say what needs to get said and Acknowledging sometimes that gets me in trouble, but that's also, I, I mean, wouldn't call it a contrarian so much as someone who ch- challenges the establishment, challenges the norms. And I see the world through that lens. So what
0: piece of the text stood out to you, Lauren? What, uh, what is the quote that, that you're bringing to this conversation today?
1: It says, authorities serve as repositories for our worries and aspirations, holding them if they can in exchange for the powers we give them.
0: Authorities serve as repositories for our worries and aspirations, holding them, if they can, in exchange for the powers we give them. So you said we're early in the chapter here. How does this relate to what's happening in the chapter?
1: Yeah, it it really summarizes it quite well. And the other thing I love about it is the, the choice of words used are very interesting. Both using, you know, saying an authority serves as a repository. There's not a, a more trite word you could really use there in that sense. But, but then you say a repository for our worries and aspirations. Those are two of the most meaningful and powerful and most dear, you know, things that a group can have. And so I, I found that juxtaposition of those two words very interesting. And then also holding them if they can, <laughs> I thought that was also fascinating, but more so this, this quote, speaking to the exchange, it's the agreement, the deal that you're making. And this chapter is about how the authority figure has to balance both that responsibility to deliver on those expectations, whilst also pushing the work forward, challenging the group pushing the group to develop capacity to, to solve its own problems, but keeping in mind that you can't just hand it off or have the perception that you're abdicating your responsibility as the authority figure. And I found that, that tension very interesting. It's something that I've dealt with a lot, and I'm sure you have as well. It's, it's the challenge of leadership, yeah? <laughs> I would love for
0: us to tap a little bit into the world of allegory, metaphor images we will circle back to the um to your experience but for now i'm just going to read the quote one more time lauren and i'm just going to invite you as you listen to it to just connect to whatever images stories songs uh pictures uh come up for you as you listen to that quote here it comes authorities serve as repositories for worries and aspirations holding them if they can in exchange for powers we give them?
1: So immediately I think of (laughs) a very simple thinker (laughs) as a very technical person, but I I literally think of like a, a bucket. And I think of the authority figure walking around holding this vessel. And in this vessel, all of those expectations, all of the needs of the team, of the organization, of the group are in there, and, and you know I'm I'm holding it and I'm keeping it warm and I'm protecting these things, and it's my job not to, you know, let the bucket overflow. It's my job not to trip and fall and spill it all out, <laughs> to to sort of protect these these items. And so long as I do that job, as so long as I can do that, I can continue to to lead this organization, lead this team. Mm. Balancing act. Balancing act. Yes. And then sometimes there's so many worries, just so many, so many.
0: And then the, um, as I'm thinking about that image that's coming up, you know, the the water carrier.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: And the heaviness. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm thinking about sort of multiple buckets, how heavy they are too. Right. Yeah.
1: And, uh knowing your limitations on what you can hold and what you should or should not hold.
0: I think there's there's this fantasy often in people that if I only had more power, if I only was higher up in the Mm -hmm. hierarchy, I worked a lot (laughs) in schools. You know, people were like, if I were only the head of school, I could really shape the strategy and the curriculum and the, you know, the (laughs) orientation of the school. But then once people are in that seat, (laughs) the head of school, they're like, in touch with, you know, all of the buckets you're talking about, yes. like all of these expectations. <laughs> the inbox is overflowing, mm-hmm. right? The calendar is overflowing. People are knocking the door, literally.
1: Oh yeah. And then coming to you and, and sitting there and going, here are all the things. What are you going to do about it? And then you actually have the expectation to do something as opposed to before you're in that role. You can hear about those things. But at that point, you're now accountable.
0: There was a reaction you when I said, water carrier. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious, what was that about?
1: This was just remembering that theme from, or that analogy used all the time in, in the coursework, you know, whose water are you carrying? And one of the roles that I started um, coming in and taking on a, a large team, I remember thinking to myself, I am going to be very careful about what water I choose to carry Um, specifically because my predecessor carried a lot of people's water and it wore him down it completely wore him down and I told myself I can't find myself in that situation and yeah that really resonated with me when you said that just a reminder of that
0: you share a little bit more with us what how did you know that your predecessor carried too much water and how did you actually manage not taking all of his buckets over from them
1: great question he may not have used the words i was carrying everyone's water but when he was you know i knew this person and when he's telling me about a lot of the challenges he was facing i immediately thought of the framework <laughs> and i thought oh man you took on all this work yourself you took it all on yourself And it can be so seductive to do that because people are looking to you as the authority figure. And especially in in these types of organizations where change is needed, people want to come to you and to to lay all these things on you. And it can be so seductive to go, I can do it. Then it becomes overwhelming, right? And I mean, fortunately, with you know the experiences that we've had with this framework. It's something that I have a, a pretty keen sort of sensitivity to when I see it,
0: Lauren. I would love for us to read that code one more time, and and this time I want to invite you to connect to your professional work of you know both management authority work, leadership work that you've done in this industry that in a way combines technical and adaptive work in such beautiful ways, such intense ways, right? Sort of you have the beautiful technical work that all goes into the launch of a, of a rocket or of a satellite and, and, and like, it's a lot of innovation work that's being managed. It's a lot of growth that's being managed in the space industry. So, so as I'm reading this quote, uh, I'd love to hear how that quote has been coming to life. In your own experience. So here it comes. Authorities serve as repositories for our worries and aspirations, holding them if they can in exchange for the powers we give them.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I will pull from some thoughts around engineering management, specifically in the aerospace industry, where you're seeing this shift, this shift from what we call heritage space, which are your companies that have been around for several decades, your your Lockheed Martins, your Northrop Grummans, your Boeing's, to what is a term referred to as new space. So these are the newer companies between twenty or less years old, your spaceX's, your rocket labs, company like companies like that. And part of what makes those companies new space is not simply that they are developing new technologies. In some cases, the technologies really aren't that new. It's a different spin on them. But what's really making them new space, in in my opinion, is the way in which they structure their organizations, the efficiency in which they develop products to lower the cost significantly, orders of magnitude in some cases, than what the heritage-based companies can do. And so, as you can imagine, there's so many layers to which that's possible, right? It's how many people do you employ? What type of processes you have in the organization? What is your business strategy? What is the cost of your materials? How efficient are you in manufacturing? There's so many, so many layers to this. And I have found having worked in both of those environments and in kind of a hybrid environment as well, that this transition from this old space or heritage space to, to new space is quite a challenge. Uh, For a lot of organizations, it's hard to even just be a new space person, frankly, like uh, existing in the old space um, or heritage space ecosystem, which is all designed around that, around the large defense contractors, around the cost plus contracts and things like that. So that's just more of a high level sort of grounding and kind of some of the dynamics that the industry is facing right now. And there are certain problems that are great to be solved in the new space way and others that are not. But what we are seeing is a push towards the new space way of doing things. So when I hear that quote, I think of times in which I've managed teams in, let's call it more of a hybrid environment. And you'll have engineers that are used to the heritage space way of doing things. You know, they're used to having... Very clear directions. They're used to a schedule that's very clear. This is my budget, which all of these things sound really normal, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's not always the case. And I think what they're really used to is really strong authority arrangements where there is a requirement that the government has set down that you have to execute to. And there's a whole series of processes and rules that exist in the organization that you have to. Follow in order to meet those requirements. And then you deliver the product and everything is fine. But what the new space world has taught us is maybe those aren't the right requirements. Maybe we question those requirements. Maybe the schedule can be even faster than what we've been doing. Maybe we can skip that part altogether. And being a lead or a leader of of a team that's wrestling with that challenge is just super interesting. And what I found was when being in that role is being able to, again, like deal with that that balance between, hey, you know, this is their expectation, right? They're just like, you're going to give me the budget. You're going to give me the requirements. You're going to do all of these things. But I'm also going, we need to move beyond that. Like we have to adjust to this new reality. And so I definitely have found my, myself in that position quite a bit trying to manage both delivering on those expectations whilst also maybe shifting those expectations a little bit. Mm.
0: So it sounds almost like you have, you have, there's two different forms of authorizations that you've experienced on the one side, you know, somebody hired you and maybe in one of those more new space arenas saying like, hey, Lauren, would you organize the, the teamwork around these new norms of innovation and fast-paced and agile and all of these pieces, and kind of the there's a formal authority contract that you're hired to deliver, right? But then there's also a team of engineers that maybe have a more heritage, a more tra- traditional expectation of you around how things are going, and you sit in that middle, kind of managing both of these expectations at the same time, and and Maybe negotiating both at the same time?
1: Or even more interestingly, sometimes the organization says they want that change, but where the rubber meets the road, it's like, whoa, the losses that the organization has to endure in order to make those shifts can be quite substantial. And so that negotiation is absolutely like managing up with the expectations from your your leadership on, you know, at the end of the day, it's execute these things. And also managing down, you know, the team has expectations as well. And and oftentimes what's really cool about these situations is the team will be looking at the companies that are moving really fast and they'll have a hunger for that too. They'll go, I want that. I want that. But so oftentimes, you know, folks don't really, they don't understand what it takes to be that. And it can be quite jarring. To sort of leave behind some of these old ways of doing things, these traditional ways of doing things and looking at things a little bit different. But I also have to say, honestly, for me, it was so fascinating to recognize my own biases and identities that I brought to that situation and to go, wait a second, maybe there's something good about this way, about the old way. Maybe there's something good there. Say more. Well, Most of my aerospace background has been in that fast, you know, new space environment where a lot of, where certain processes and certain assumptions were kind of tossed out the window and and you start from scratch. But there is a long history of success in the aerospace industry. We put people on the moon, right? We've done this. We've landed on Mars. We've flown spacecraft out of our solar system into interstellar space, like, you can't look at this and go, eh, it's all been a disaster. We must throw it all out. This isn't true. And I recognize the bias against the traditional ways of doing things that I brought to the table and having to question even within myself like, oh, wait a second here. <laughs> what do I have to learn from this situation? And, and is that going to make me more effective as that authority figure? <laughs>
0: How can I imagine you questioning yourself and and kind of engaging in this question around how do we do work? Like, is that a conversation you're having in your head or in your journal or with your coach? Or is that a conversation you're having in your team?
1: Definitely with the team. My approach is I love to just, I believe in being vulnerable as a leader and just sitting there and being like, hey, you know what? Maybe I didn't have this one right. Maybe I was wrong about this one. Now. Um, I'd be curious what my teammates have to say about that. That's what I think I'm doing. (laughs) But, you know, seeing it as a conversation and eliciting those perspectives of people on the team who maybe think about the problem a little bit differently than me and how important that is in in our industry. It's almost a little bit of a um, radical act in some ways, frankly, to look at something that a traditional aerospace company may be doing and saying, Hey, that's actually pretty good. We should roll that in. There's so much energy around disrupting things and breaking things down and throwing off the old ways that, when you can go to the organization and bring some of those more traditional ways and acknowledge them for how good they are, and instead of going let's throw them out, maybe all we do is we adjust them a little bit. Maybe we put a little little twist on them, make it a little bit faster, but keep the core of what it was trying to accomplish there, and that. That's always really fun. <laughs> it's really fun.
0: As I'm imagining myself in that, into that team meeting or into these multiple team meetings that you're having, I can imagine that that must have felt probably quite validating to the team members who uh, may have he- held worries around you tossing out all of that old
1: stuff. Ooh, yeah. But, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking through... Oh boy, this is a great conversation because I'm thinking through how I would feel often the sense of you can't let off the gas. You got to keep pushing the group towards this different way of doing things. And in some ways you become dogmatic, even though you're not necessarily because the, the momentum in the opposite direction is so heavy that it can be very tempting to just be very dogmatic this sounds like too much process cut it and i would find myself doing that at times like i am not claiming to have been perfect at this by any stretch and this is why i resonates so much with this this concept of you know what is what do you buffer versus not how how hard do you push when you kind of dial it back you know it's a really tricky balance yeah you were talking about losses
0: earlier and i just i'm just curious to hear more about that you know we we know from high readings that people don't resist change people resist loss and so as you think about the losses that both the the losses around going faster the losses around going slower like how did you diagnose these losses and once you knew the losses potentially people were facing how did you how did you handle them
1: so the loss around going faster in some cases i've really really valued having a stint in my career where I was part of what I call the problem. So being able to have an intimate view of what value am I adding versus not? What are some concrete ways in which I could be more effective versus not allows a conversation that isn't, you're not doing enough. You aren't good enough. You are not a value, but is instead saying we as a whole, like what what value are we bringing? How can we be more effective? What are ways in which we can be more efficient? Wouldn't wouldn't you love it if yes. the work that you were doing were more meaningful? I'm really grateful that I had that experience because it's not just standing on the outside, looking and pointing and saying, those people aren't doing good work. And so in terms of your question around managing the the losses there, I believe you do that by, or I believe I did that to the extent that I could by speaking to Intrinsic value that the individuals have beyond the process. And though you may be leaving or losing this role, there's there's something else to go look to.
0: Yeah, there's a connection. It seems to me that there's a connection to the higher meaning, to a higher purpose of that process or of a different process, but like, you know, the purpose, connecting people to that purpose. Yes. Terrific. Lauren, I'm gonna invite you to read your sliver of text uh, for one last time uh, to us. And then I'll, I'll wrap us up with a closing
1: question. Okay. Authorities serve as repositories for our worries and aspirations, holding them if they can in exchange for the powers we give them.
0: Lauren, looking forward, what action?
1: Are you being called to take? I would say a commitment out front to keeping very, very clearly and at the forefront of what I do that exchange and remembering that my role as an authority figure is. And I know this, you know, it's I know this, but it means something differently to like know it and to like really feel it and internalize that and, and have that feel as a sense of purpose to be very protective of that agreement to that exchange. But also, but also in managing the adaptive work and managing, pushing, you know, the organization towards something bigger something better into this uncomfortable place into this like great beyond that have to keep that peace not too far away i have to remember that that's where it gets out of control that's where it gets unwieldy that's where the disappointment leads to assassination and i think this is something that moving forward in the future it's going to be a bigger piece of of my um my strategy mm.
0: This is beautiful, and I just want to say, honoring that exchange, that exchange that we are entrusted by people with power in exchange for the services we deliver, the protection direction, the order, the holding of the worries and the aspirations, like that exchange I'm um, honoring that exchange, I think that is such a core piece in us restoring the trust in authorities, because we've all had moments when authority figures were not trustworthy, were not delivering these services, were forgetting about the fact that they have authorizers, that they are responsible to these authorizers, right? Mm And. Being in touch with that exchange, I, I love that so much from, from your insight. I think it is such a restorative function in these authority relationships that are so, as Harvard writes, are so essential to the functioning of, of human uh, organizations.
1: Yes. And being aware when you aren't living up to your part of the deal, right? How can you ask, especially in my industry, how can you ask? great things of people how can you ask people to work on sundays launching rockets how can you ask people to stay you know a little bit later and work on you know the test stand a little bit longer than they otherwise would have to the the sacrifices for better or worse mostly for worse (laughs) for better in the sense of moving the work forward but the sacrifices that people in the aerospace industry make for their families or to their families right they They're not home when they otherwise would be. They're traveling a lot. It's really hard work where people are so mission-driven and so mission-oriented. There are places you could go and make way more money than being in the aerospace industry. But people do it because they feel called towards something bigger. And when your leadership, when your authority figures are abdicating, they're part of the exchange, there is nothing more disheartening than that, given how much you're putting into it. And I strive to never be that type of leader but i think that starts with really recognizing the contract there right
0: lauren thank you so much being here with us for reminding us of that contract (laughs) (laughs) and sharing your practice it's been such a joy and honor to have you
1: here thank you thank you michael this has been great
0: coming up what happens if i change my lens from talking about leadership to actually practicing it. This week, I ran an experiment and I'll debrief that with my coach, Judith. That's after the break.
2: Hey there, this is Andy, facilitator and executive coach at Konu. Thanks for tuning in to On The Balcony. Are you curious to learn more about how to exercise leadership or how to thrive in times of uncertainty and change? Over the next several months, Konu is hosting a series of virtual sessions designed to help you bring some of the ideas from this podcast into your work and your life. We'll explore key leadership distinctions that can help you mobilize people to make progress in times of change, regardless of your job title, your position, or your seniority. We'll also explore practices and mindset shifts that can help you stay anchored and grounded when the heat goes up and take care of yourself over the long haul so you don't burn out. You can learn more and sign up at konu.org slash events. And as a regular listener of this podcast, you can use the code BALCONY to waive your registration fee. That's konu.org slash events and the registration code is BALCONY. Excited to see you there.
0: Welcome back to On The Balcony. In the second part of each episode, we'll shift gears towards application. In a moment, you will tune into a live coaching conversation with me as the client, and my colleague Judith Teichert as the coach. But before that, let's catch up. You might recall that in the previous three coaching sessions, I set out with the goal on contributing more to the challenge of diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice by tapping more into my own experience as a German around dealing with difficult history. Something I feel that is missing in the United States. You may also recall that in the first few sessions, I did mostly internal work, exploring my own stories and triggers that have prevented me from doing more worries fragility around belonging, rejection, and dealing with other people's anger. This week, I finally found the courage to move into action and I ran an experiment. In uh, today's session, you can see how Judith helps me debrief my action by getting on the balcony with me to reflect on my own learning. That is what coaching is often about, creating new awarenesses, trying out things, and capturing the learning. All right, let's jump right in. Here's Judith.
3: I'm excited to find out, you know, what's been going on since our last sessions and what would be valuable for you for this session today?
0: So I made a move. I feel like the first three coaching sessions we like were so much in, our, in my head and thinking about, you know, what are the obstacles to me to me making some progress on, on trying out how I bring in a little bit more of storytelling, you know, myself, German history, uh, around, you know, current challenges in America, around DEI, social justice, and, and what's hard about th- that. And, and I think I finally found some inspiration after all of the work we did, and I did with Andy to, to try something out, to, to make my sort of first intervention. And that happened last night. And I think I want to report out a little bit on what I did and and how that went and de- kind of debrief it with you and decide what my next move is. So the context is I was invited last night to do a small kind of conversation style workshop at the Adaptive Leadership Network. And they always have like these monthly sessions that they do twice with different people right? But it's the same session. So the first one I did last night and the other one I'm going to do today. So I, you know, maybe we can even take away some insights that I can then try out today.
3: Wow. What a, that's a beautiful opportunity <laughs> then today. Wonderful. What would be important for you in the debrief to focus on?
0: If you can help me extract some learnings, like capturing some learnings and insights around like, you know, this has obviously been hard for me. It's, this is an edge for me. So if I can sort of hold some of these learnings as object, both in terms of like, what did I do, but maybe also what did I avoid? Like, I think that would be really helpful.
3: Okay, wonderful. Would you like to start just telling me a bit about, you know, what was this workshop about and what was it that was the move, the intervention, or what did you experiment with?
0: This felt like such a wonderful fit. So the um, Adaptive Leadership Network has invited me to join this monthly session as a, you know, to make a contribution there. And it was Laura who's hosting it picked up on the thread of, you know, that I was working that challenge in my podcast. And she she said like, hey, Michael, why don't you, do you want to work this piece? Um, You know, we have a pretty safe setting. You know, it's usually like, I don't know, a dozen people show up and it's part of the members of our community. And it's never a polished, it's a conversation. It doesn't need to be like a polished place. We, We announced it to the network. And I think the theme that we chose was, we called this truth justice and remembrance, and what role does dealing with the past play in adaptive work, confronting harsh realities from the past, and framed it up as like, you know, Michael's going to share some experience from how Germans have dealt with their past and how that has shown up also in his life, and kick us off in a conversation. So here's, here's what I did. Most of what I shared was talking about some of the leadership moves that I've seen in the last what have you last eighty years since the end of World War II that, you know, Germans have made to make it make it make it acceptable to talk about the past, to integrate the past into like our current DNA and sort of to make it to increase kind of our own understanding of what what it means to be German and what it means to like have a democracy and a civil society that is built on our difficult past. And I shared out a couple of the um the leadership moves I've seen Uh, And there's of course, many, many from many different angles, but but I think the core message that I shared with a group that I still found so fascinating is that most of the leadership moves didn't come from people in high roles of authority, but most of the leadership moves came from, you know, all other, all other chairs, right? There's like Fritz Bauer, the public prosecutor who put the Auschwitz trials on, you know, in the late sixties, you know, where they tried German perpetrators in front of German courts. There is the the student protest in the sixties that really picked up on, you know, those threads and like, begin to like confront their own parents' generation. You know, there's those folks that then became teachers in their local communities and as teachers really put forward, like, like studying with their students, Nazi history in their local communities. how did it play out in our town? How did it play out in, in our community? What was Jewish life like? And these teachers in the 70s and 80s were very brave and courageous. And like they were our our teachers in a way that that we grew up in, right? And and then I was talking about how in grade eight my class was going to a concentration camp memorial site and and how it felt to come back that day to my parents and report out. And my parents were shocked about what like they have never been to a concentration camp memorial site, right? And so I was I was sharing like some of these. These moves that we, we see by you know, teachers, by that prosecutor, by the media, and how hard it was for people in elected roles to include, you know, dealing with the past in their narratives. Like we see, um, uh, I think only 40 years later, Richard von Weizsäcker, the former German president, was sharing some, like this beautiful speech around how the end of World War II was a, um, was a liberation, not a defeat, day of freedom.
3: Yeah, liberation.
0: So, so anyways, I was, I was talking a lot about conceptually about these moves, but then I, I also used the last few minutes to tie it back to my own family history. And, and, and that felt like, um, a little bit more vulnerable in a way, because a lot of my own family history is, is obscured. There's still a lot of taboos in my family. And I was talking to the victim narratives in my family, particularly on my mom's side, my Granddad was in the war and was early wounded and came back. My grandma's only brother died in World War II. And then their house got a bomb in 45. The bomb that was supposed to destroy a bridge. So my mom really grew up with these, like with a wounded dad who's like recovering from it, like in this house that was like somehow rebuilt from the ruins and kind of really in this, like with a victim narrative and only recently have they begun to uncover like you know the other side of the story you know how members of the family were also part of the ss and how members were part of the authorizing environment and you know elected the nazis into power and and you know i did a little bit of googling and and you know it's just even like some some really intense pictures of of that community where my mom grew up, where you we can see, like, um, we were talking, one of the pieces we were talking last night in that workshop was bystander versus audience. And, and we're making the case that many Germans were not bystanders, they were audiences. They were a part of the authorizing environment. So, so anyways, that was like the first 15, 20 minutes, me sharing that. And then what happened was really a very, beautiful and deep conversation in the group around both connecting to some, some members of the group connected to had like some connections to Germany and connected to that, but, but most people in the group were connecting to their own country of origins, stories and narratives. And I remember a Canadian participant was, was thinking it was, was reflecting on Canada's current struggles in kind of, how do we tell our story? and some of the american participants made connections to slavery and and how that history has been obscured and and is is you know active and the efforts currently to actively take out pieces of history out of school curriculum in in the us so uh, it was very interesting and we were dancing we were just as i was dancing the group was dancing between kind of you know macro political kind of movements and but also personal like you know We don't talk about this stuff in my family. I I don't know what my grandparents or great, like, I don't know if there were any slave owners in my family. Like, there was like those threads were beginning to emerge, and that was really meaningful for me to see. So, I don't know. It's like I could keep talking, but like I was, it was a, it was a meaningful workshop.
3: Yeah. It sounds like it. And it sounds like the, the dancing between the macro level and the micro level has been meaningful for you. It sounds also a bit like the, sort of like the stories that came up after you shared. That sounds like something meaningful. And I was just wondering, you know, what is important for you in telling me about the workshop yesterday?
0: As I'm retelling the story, I'm getting in touch with, you know, a sense of accomplishment or like, you know, I, I feel like it worked. Like on a very simple level, like I'm, I'm happy to tell that despite the fact that it took me a lot of courage to like even put my foot in the water, like it went surprisingly well. And, you know, I'm excited about that actually.
3: Wonderful. I I can sense it even, you know, through like my headphones and the screen. So we're celebrating. That's great. Wonderful. Congratulations. And I also got in touch with, you said in the beginning that you wanted to sort of extract learnings. And I wondered what assumption Were you testing with that workshop for yourself?
0: The pieces that were surfacing for me in the coaching journey so far is kind of a several worries around like what would happen if I brought in more of that side of me, right? There was the worry of like upsetting people too much, not belonging, uh, uh, being sort of alienating people, also being wrong. People might feel like, you know what, why are you telling us this German story? This has nothing to do with, with our experiences here. Like you can't compare these cases, right? So there was a, there was a lot of fear and worry around this not landing, this not connecting and, and kind of almost doing harm. And at least last night with these, like with this dozen group of a dozen participants, that worry did not materialize. The opposite was the case. The group felt really connected, like several members reflected on that, like how meaningful it is to have a space to talk about it, how deep it went. We went to small groups, how deep it went into small groups, how people began to explore like their own family narratives and the stuff they're not talking about. So, despite the rawness and the unpolishedness, this was a pretty unpolished case in a way. It felt like, you know, maybe even that contributed, like maybe that contributed even to that, that it was like work in progress. It doesn't need to be perfect, you know.
3: I think I'm sensing two learnings in there. One is the assumption that what you have to share doesn't help people relate to the topic. That was one of the assumptions that I heard. And you said that didn't materialize at all. Like people were interested and it even helped them connect to each other too. And the other learning that I heard was It doesn't need to be perfect. And maybe even the improvisational nature and the sort of unpolishedness, the rawness is actually really helpful. Now, you also said that it did take some courage for you. Can you maybe share a sentence or two on where did you need the most courage?
0: I think two things. One is doing it, setting up the thing, showing up. But once I was on the book, that was on the books and like, okay, great. I did that. second in the session itself it was the um the personal narrative and what's real hard there is like how much my own family history is still obscured and how i have still some work to do to uncover some of that and that is weird that feels exposing that feels also like maybe michael you should do a little bit more of that work first before you go out and 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 invite others to do that (laughs) and it also feels weird because i feel a um there is a sense of mm, this is a hard word but there is a sense of betrayal that i'm sensing by sort of you know publicly talking about the pieces of my family's history that are ugly and you know how they fell into a victim narrative i didn't work on the oppressor narrative and like didn't lean into like they're part of the mess. And those pieces I feel like, you know, they didn't really agree on me talking about this in public. And am I exposing them?
3: So there was three moments, like the first is doing, like actually doing it. That took some courage. And then the personal narrative and, and publicly talking about what's obscured and the sense of maybe I haven't done enough work here to get this out and then the third is it felt a bit like a betrayal like you were exposing your own family and i'm asking about what was most courageous for you because that is often an indicator of where did the most learning happen and you are dealing with fear a lot so courage is like an antidote for fear sometimes and i was wondering where where did those moments happen and in those three instances what did you learn from those moments of, you know, actually doing it, showing up, and then being public with an unpolished and not completed personal narrative. And the betrayal
0: part. For one and two, I think there's the same learning, which is there is actually, and I know that intellectually, but in my heart, it's always sometimes hard to forget it, right? This is this whole idea of not having it all figured out, not being perfect, but actually bringing something that is like a little unpolished actually helps build connection. It like increases community. It's not that, you know, like being overly smart and polished and all of that is like sometimes gives us a sense of like professionalism and distance. Right. So so I know that intellectually, but like in my heart, I still like sometimes thrive for like this needs to be great. And versus people told me, and i I reflected on that in the workshop itself, and people told me like, no, it's actually like perfect, and it's imperfection it's 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 it helps us to connect and and that landed for me really beautifully, and trusting in the community, right trusting that people are actually coming listening for their good intentions rather than their you know where do I find the mistake in this, where do I find the mistake in the argument and and so that is I think those are the learnings on the first two items you shared on the betrayal piece. You know, I'm not fully sure yet. I think I'm noticing it. I'm like, oh, can I talk about this even more? Like I'm, I'm like dipping my toe into the water there. And I'm like, I don't know. I think that is kind of the, the, the edge is sort of, I'm, I'm sensing there is space for me to do more of that. And I think it's, it would be interesting and, and meaningful because I think that's where the work is. Like the work is not about us reading more like generalized big histories, like, you know, enough books have been written, but the work is actually to figure out who lived in this house, what happened in the street, what did my grandparents and great-grandparents do and not do, and what are we not talking about? That is the work, uh, the actual work, I think. And so that's interesting. Like it feels like, you know, we're opening the space, but like that piece, there's also work for me
3: yeah so then learning is maybe that this is an edge and i remember in our last session we were sort of like trying to find out where exactly is that edge right now and this is it there is one all right great and now you said in the beginning that you'll have another opportunity today And you said that you wanted, you know, decide on a next step. And maybe that includes the workshop today. Maybe it doesn't. We can be open to both. But if you look at the learnings that you just named, what might be a next step?
0: Okay, so I'll do it again. I'll at least do the same thing Mm -hmm. and kind of with the intention of getting a little bit more practice in it and and see if I can learn anything else. This will be different to that. That is one commitment I have you know I took some courage last time and I'll put the courage in again and then the small other piece that I think I'd be willing to just put a little bit more courage on is the personal narrative Uh, what I did yesterday was for the first 10 or 15 minutes I talked about the German case and then the last three minutes I talked about my own family case and I think what I want to try today and I have I had like a couple of slides including like the the rebuilt home of my, of my grandparents, like with the year painted on it, like nineteen forty six, and I'm I actually think that that slide and that piece of a story can come earlier in the narrative. So what I think I want to try out today is like start with Nazi Germany and my family and like have them there at the same time. Here is Nazi Germany. Here is my family, and see if I can track them in parallel, if I can track the stories in parallel and sort of make it come to life a little bit more integrated rather than like, oh, here's the case. And by the way, here's my story.
3: And what assumption will you be testing with that intervention, with that experiment? I'm asking because I'm wondering, is this the facilitator trying to make the facilitation even more perfect? Or are you testing an assumption that is related to your leadership? learning edge right now
0: well the the anxiety around betrayal and the anxiety around the unpublishedness of my own story i think is real and so i think that way i think the flow will be better yes but i think it that's not the purpose the purpose is actually for me to like bring in the own my own story including my fear around like it being like a little not worked through enough and betraying my, my own family and and it comes to mind to me that now that i'm saying that is I want to also check in with my mom in the next few days around having done that and sharing out some experience and just hearing some of her reactions to that. Whether I'm not sure, I need full authorization from her to like use the stories, but just checking in like is where are her trigger points and and I think that will be interesting in itself. Also, as 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 I'm working that family case, so I think maybe that's the you know go back you know, tell the story, weave it in a little bit more, but then report back to my mom and see like, because that's my mom is really what I'm caring about in that, in that family and see how that lands with her and, and how, how exposed that she, she feels about me sharing stories about her parents and uncles and aunts and stuff.
3: And that links so beautifully to what you, what you shared earlier about this is where you believe the work is. And that might be the new edge, the new door that you just opened. Wonderful. How does this feel for you? Does this feel like complete, or is there still an edge that you think you would like to look into?
0: I feel very engaged at the moment. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm dancing. Like we, the edge was the word, right? I'm dancing right on the edge, or like the image of like a, a an adventure. Like it feels like a, a a ski slope that is is steep, but is not too steep. Like that's kind of the. The, the feeling at the moment, so I, I I'll I'll keep you posted how it goes. But I'm I'm excited about this at the moment.
3: Wonderful, thank you so much, Michael. That all sounds wonderful, and I'm really curious to find out. You know, how did the session go today? But also that other door, that other edge that you just discovered. How did that go? Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Judith, for for partnering with me and being there to to like debrief and and pull out these lessons. Really appreciate it. On the Balcony, we'll be back with episode five. We'll be joined by Radha Ruparel, head of the Global Leadership Accelerator at teach for all global network that is developing leadership in classrooms and communities in more than 50 countries around the world. We'll discuss chapter five of Leadership Without Easy Answers with the title Applying Power. The chapter will shed some more light onto the resources that come with the role of authority and the interesting concept of holding environments. We talk
3: about the ability of those who are exercising leadership to hold a lot of conflict, to hold a lot of tension, to hold different views. And yet I don't think we talk enough about the inner work that we need to do ourselves, that inner discipline, that Poise, that groundedness that's required and able in order to be able to hold that.
0: I'll invite you to read the chapter yourself. That's chapter five of Leadership Without Easy Answers. If you like the show, press the subscribe button and leave a review. On the Balcony is brought to you by Kono, growing and provoking leadership. We're produced by Podigy, editing Riley Byrne and Daniel Link. Cover art. Kenneth Moyo and Rosie Greenberg. Our music is called Change in Blue by Hannah Gill and The Hours. Thank you for listening. We'll see you for episode five on The Balcony.